Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 18 today as we move through our series on David's story a little bit. And this is a great pa- I love this passage. I love uh, 1 Sam 18. I think it's a, a great place for us to spend some time. And while you're turning there, fun fact, which you probably would have guessed anyway, is that when it comes to magazine sales, two out of three magazines that fly off the shelf are um, celebrity gossip, right? Two out of three. That was a little shocking to me, but not real shocking. Um, One out of three is in the business category or a news weekly type of a thing. And when ad companies um, have done polls on why the celebrity magazines and the gossip magazines sell so well, um, what they found is that it's most addictive because it makes people feel normal about themselves. It makes the commoners feel a little bit more normal. Hey, maybe even a little bit better than what we're reading about in the celebrity world. I mean, when we read about something that Will Smith has done or something that Kanye West has said um, or when we catch a marriage coming apart like Johnny Depp or Amber Heard, It's interesting, isn't it, how we kind of peer into our souls and say, yeah, I thought so. (laughs) They're a mess. I'm not. That makes me feel a lot better about myself. Sure, they make more money than me, but that's about it. Um, Listen, isn't it interesting that those celebrity collisions stay in the news cycle so long? Uh, It's You know why it stays so long? It's because you keep clicking on it, right? We keep clicking on it. We keep buying it. So we're going to get what we want. And that is what we want. As a culture, we love to build our heroes up and then kind of pass the popcorn as they all come apart. We love the entertainment value of that as much as anything. And then on top of that, depending on the celebrity and then the crime, we love a good redemption story, don't we? We love to see a Robert Downey Jr. come out of the cellar to become Iron Man. We love to see Tiger Woods kind of show up on the sports scene and be relevant again. And that is probably a different sermon entirely, why we love that. I will give you the punchline. It's pre-programmed in all of us to love a redemption story, to love a story of new starts. Um, You can't find a sports movie that does not have that in there, and I'm not mad about it. I mean, you keep making sports movies where the underdog wins, I will keep giving you all my money and watching it. I think they're fascinating. But similar to our interest in witnessing the collapse of a celebrity is witnessing the collapse of our rivals. And I know it sounds even weird. You might think I don't have any rivals, but you do. It's the person that you compare yourself to. Maybe they live down the street. Maybe you went to school with them. Right? Maybe you go to work with them. Maybe you used to date them. They're a rival. Right? We find ourselves typically happiest when they are sad and kind of sad when they are happy. Listen, I've never gone to a class reunion before, and I probably never will because I won't. But I won't lie, if I did go to one, I would be curious to see how some people turned out, right? You know what I mean? All for the wrong reasons, of course. I mean, that's in every single movie that has a class reunion scene, isn't there? It's always, it's always the guy that was the nerd in school and, you know, was, had his head put in the toilet or whatever, and he shows up, and what happens? The guy that was the homecoming king um, is a lot overweight on his third marriage, and he's kind of basic, right? He works down at the, at the Denny's or whatever, and we're supposed to love that. There's some, there's some gratification in seeing the tables turned, and when it comes to comparison, comparison seems innocent enough when it's in a context like that where we can all laugh at it, but in the real world, in our context, comparison can kill you. It could lead straight 
to destruction. Again, those are other big words. But there's, there's truth in it. You see, comparison, what it does to you and me, it, it starts to structure and build a covetous heart. And, and, and coveting, just as a, as a neutral term, I mean, when it's by itself, to covet is just a neutral. I mean, if I were to say to somebody, hey, I covet your thoughts on this. I'm just saying I hunger for your, your insight, your feedback. I want to know what you think. But it can mutate depending on our object of desire. That's when coveting could be something less than neutral, right? We see this in Exodus 20, God saying, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything, anything else that is your neighbor's. Saul's going to do that in our passage today with David. And we, you and me, if we have eyes to see, if we have eyes to see Saul's heart in all of this, this can resonate with us. It can connect with us. In fact, his coveting turns very quickly to envy. And envy is something totally different. Envy is toxic enough to destroy you and everyone around you. It's like an acid that just keeps dripping and won't stop dripping. And it flies under the radar for all of us because, and, and this is one of the reasons I think we're more um, maybe acclimatized to seeing envy and being okay with it is because that's what marketing uses. It's one of the big levers that big companies will pull to get you to buy something. That slimmer body you want, by the way, the, the one your rival has, right? The one you don't have, you can have it. You have to drink this green powder, right? Just a scoop a day. Click here, you can get this promo, and we will send it out, and then you too can have that slimmer body or the gym membership. Or maybe you're, you're scrolling on YouTube, and of course the ads come up because you're like me and you're too cheap to buy the premiere, right? So you have to watch the seven-second ad, and you see the 23-year-old bopping down the street. Of course they look cool, they're dressed cool, their skin is perfect, their dance moves are are pretty perfect. They're spot on, right? And there's a soundtrack pulsing in the background that you kind of wish was your soundtrack. And you know why they have that life and you don't? Because their iPhone is newer than yours. That's why, right? It sounds so random, but it sells iPhones. Or, or maybe it's not even on YouTube. Maybe you're just driving down the street and you're behind the better SUV <laughs> with the stickers on the back the display a better life. It's the hieroglyphics of a life well lived, right? The better stick figures, the better school, the better sports, the better achievements, the better everything. And then it starts to come, the comparison, the envy. Listen, we can connect with Saul in our passage today. And first, first Sam 18, the reason I like it, one of the passages that I like the most is because it doesn't just show us the inner mechanics of envy, but it gives us the solution, which I need, and I need badly, because I'm just like you. I struggle with envy just like everybody else. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up where we left off last week with Mark. If you weren't here last week, Mark did a master class on pulling us through 1 Samuel 17 as we looked at the battle between David and Goliath. It was a great sermon because what we sh were shown is it, there, there was an unassuming champion that fought for a powerless and watching army that didn't really contribute anything. And why? So they could share his victory and escape slavery from the enemy. And what's interesting is that represents the gospel story where later Christ, who is another unassuming champion in his time, would fight, not Goliath, but a bigger Goliath in death and in sin itself. For who? A powerless watching people that contributed nothing. Why? So that we could share his victory and also escape 
escape the slavery of a bigger enemy. Friend, that story has very little to do with a boy and a giant and a couple rocks. It has everything to do with the gospel and God's role in it in your life. It's a fascinating story. But right after that, we get this glimpse into movement in Saul's heart. And this is going to be in 1 Samuel 18. I'm going to read a few verses and then pause. But this is the word of the Lord for us today, going to be very helpful. It says this, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, it would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Okay, Jonathan is next to be king. Um, He is the king in waiting, and he trusted David as God's salvation and Messiah for God's people, which is why we see him doing something that kings and kings in waiting never did in this place of brutality. This is a culture of strength and honor and shame. That's one of the reasons we we have a hard time reading 1 and 2 Samuel is because we don't really come from such an honor-shame culture, but that is what that is. And one thing you never did as a king in waiting or as a king is make yourself vulnerable. Submit yourself like that, to, to strip yourself down from that royal place. You never did that. But that's what he's doing. He handed over his royal robe, armor, bow, belt, sword. You might as well have just handed him the crown, to be honest with you. This is a picture of submitted, vulnerable trust. That's what this is a picture of. It's Jonathan saying, I'm happiest, David, when you're happy. I'm saddest when you're sad. Why? Because my soul is knit with yours. He's handing over his future reign. The one guy had a lot to lose right here. Okay, let's jump back into verse 5. Or we'll go into verse, yeah, we'll start verse 5. We'll read 5 again. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. He's a little bit of a secretary of defense there, over all of the men of war. That's important to know. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 6. And they were coming home. And when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet the king Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Okay, here it is. We're getting a little bit to the meat of the passage. David is in charge of quite a bit, and it's a great, great idea to everybody else. I mean, he's got the full endorsement of the nation. Everybody loves him. Saul's kids love him. His advisors love him. Everybody loves David. But between you and me, this is such a stupid song. (laughs) Why would they? It's like a failure to read the room by these girls. They had to know that Saul was a little bit insecure, and yet they're going to sing a song that celebrates 
one person over an insecure person. The lyrics provoke Saul to compare, that's where it starts, to compare himself to David. And what does he do? He covets David's fame. David's viral. He's trending up. Saul's trending down. And what this does is it quickly turns, not just to coveting, but to jealousy and envy. Right? By the way, jealousy and envy, they're not the exact same thing. Okay? I, 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 I don't think it matters mostly when we conflate or interchange those terms. Honestly, I mean, I, I'm, you're not going to catch it from me if I hear you say envy when you mean jealous and vice versa. I just don't think it matters most of the time. We know what we mean. But I think when it comes to a couple areas in the Bible, and, and possibly this one, I do think it's important. You see, what jealousy is, is when we become protective of something that's precious to us. We vigilantly guard something that's a, a treasure or something that's precious to us. And this is why God ascribes jealousy to himself. Has that ever bothered some of you? That God refers to himself as a jealous God? A lot of people struggle with this. But he says in Exodus 20 a couple times, I'm a jealous God. He says it several times throughout the Bible. He says it in Deuteronomy 4, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. People struggle with this because they project how they feel when they are sinfully jealous on a God who can express jealousy without sin. As some of you who are my age know, because you remember probably, this was the singular reason Oprah Winfrey publicly declared abandoning Christianity because she could not wrap her mind around God being so petty to be jealous. She ascribed that as a sinful trait on God and she says, I'm out. But God's jealousy isn't the sinful jealousy we experience. It's a righteous jealousy. It's his righteous holiness that reacts to evil. I mean, when you really look at the big idea of what's valuable in our cosmos, there's nothing better or more beautiful than God inside of his glory. It's best for you that his glory is revealed in your life. It's best for the cosmos. It's best for all of creation that his glory is the centerpiece. Very simply, he is worthy of our affections, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our worship. Okay? It's all very basic. So it's when we commit our affections to other things horizontally, what we would call idols, what the Bible would call idols, creation instead of the creator, then that worship becomes self-worship. And it's not God's glory that we're celebrating or becomes the centerpiece of our life. It's our own glory that does so. And so he's jealous. Rightfully so, he's jealous. Just like a wife would be righteously jealous when the love that is supposed to be hers is spent on another woman. We would never look at a woman that has suffered infidelity at the hands of her husband and say, you're being kind of selfish. That jealousy you feel, it's sinful. We would never say that because it's a righteous jealousy that she feels. And that's the picture we have of God here. J.I. Packer says it better than me. He says, jealousy is a praiseworthy zeal on the part of God to preserve something supremely precious. And I agree. I think we most commonly associate jealousy with being anxious and petty obsessing, smothering, whatever the object of our jealousy is. It's not so with God. It's not so with God. And again, it's okay if we, we change that. We don't have to be dorks about how we use envy and jealousy in our, our common language. But I think when it comes to God describing himself as jealous many times, it's kind of important to know what's up, isn't it? I mean, maybe that's helpful for some of you. But in this case, Saul's jealousy is not righteous. It's far from it. 
It's not God's glory that is being sabotaged. It's his own. It's his own. I mean, there is a Spotify playlist he is used to hearing, and it's all about him. And now a couple new songs have slipped into the playlist. (laughs) And he's being petty. He's being anxious. Why? He wanted glory for himself. The Bible says it led him to immediately envy him. And we get this by the word, he eyed him. Right? My daughter tells me sometimes, she says there's this, I'd never caught it until this last year, side eye. That person gave me the side eye. That's what Saul was doing. The side eye. See, I'm cool. I know what the kids say. (laughs) Envy's different than jealousy. Envy's actually got more wickedness attached to it because it, it doesn't just want what somebody else has or wants to protect what you have. It wants what somebody else has and wants them to lose it. There's resent and bitterness thread through envy because you don't want them to have what they have because you feel like you should be having it instead. You don't want to just be homecoming king or queen at the old reunion. You need your rival to be broken and simple and forgotten. Saul did not just covet the praise. He hated David for getting it. That's the difference. That's the difference. And we experience envy very similarly when a rival that we have posts on social media that they're getting a divorce. Or you just hear about it. Or maybe you see that they just didn't age very well. Put on a few pounds, they struggle with depression. Their life didn't turn out like you thought it would turn out. Is there not a piece of you that feels eerily comforted in that? (laughs) It's okay to be honest with yourself. There's a piece of you that says, well, that's about how it should have gone. Because they had something that they didn't deserve. I should have had all the accolades and the affection that they got. We experience this. You you know what's curious is we never think about envy being very destructive in our lives. We don't, which is why you don't catch yourself broken over it in your prayer. You're You're not on your knees before the Lord repenting for your envy. Probably don't own any books on it. We relegate it to a minor league sin that sits on the fourth or the fifth shelf. I mean, it'd be nice to be done with envy, but it's not like it kills anybody, right? It's not like it's going to destroy anybody. Not so. Verse 10, it does destroy. Let's see this. The next day, the Bible says, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house with David, or while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him the commander of a thousand. That's a demotion, by the way. He demoted him. And he went out, and he came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Verse 29 sums up the whole chapter. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And this starts off a very difficult relationship between the two men. You know, there needs to be some unpacking in this part of the passage right here, which is fine, it's okay, because a harmful spirit is sent from God, and that just sounds wrong, 
right? When you just read it, it sounds a little wrong. It's like if you kind of squint your eyes when you read it, it almost reads like God is putting Saul in some untenable position where he cannot help but to just sin. But that's not the case. Saul's choices here are real choices. He's responsible for them. It's important to know that God is not being vindictive here. He's not tempting Saul to sin. God says in James 3 that God himself is not tempted and he tempts no one. That's not what's happening here. God is sending this terrifying spirit, and that's what the word also means, is it's a terrifying spirit. He sends this terrifying spirit as an act of judgment because Saul is pervasively rebellious. This isn't his first foul ball, friends. If you read the story, it's one after another, after another, after another issues where he just can't stop but being a rebel. He's a career criminal. And so God says, I'm going to send this as a judgment Here's the thing, and this won't be new to anybody, I don't think. God's judgment is so often just to simply give us over to what we want. Just to give us what we're chasing. First, to get the carrot that we've been chasing after. Paul says this in Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He gave them up. He gave them up. That brings a sobriety to me a little bit, by the way. That God is a divine judge. He sent the terrifying spirit to Saul as an act of righteous judgment. And all it did was amplify what he already wanted to do, which was kill and destroy. It brings sobriety, friend, because when you keep rebelling, God, being a perfect judge, will eventually, eventually, simply just let you have what you want. And in, in fact, if you were to take that and extrapolate it right off the graft, is, is that not what hell is? It's just, listen, hell is not full of anyone who really loved Jesus and wanted to be there. They chased after Jesus and just couldn't figure out which right church to go to. That's not what we're going to find. What you will find in hell is people that never wanted God as a father. They never really wanted the gospel to be true. They, they never wanted to enjoy Jesus. That's what you will find. You eventually get what you want. And then conversely, when you have a heart that wants to enjoy Jesus and you ask for such things, that he will also give you up to your desires. This, this is how he judges, right? That's what we're seeing in the spirit. It's not all that freaky. But, but what is also interesting is that he chunks a spear. Not, not like we throw a coffee mug or kick a toy across the room whenever we're angry, nothing like that. He was aiming to murder a man who was innocently ministering to him. I mean, get the context here. This is fascinating. David's music was a remedy to Saul's tormented soul. We all have songs that we listen to, right? I've got a couple songs I listen to, and they just straighten me right up. They bring perspective back. I can take a deep breath. They, they minister to me. We all have them. They change from time to time, but this mu music has the ability to do this. They just transport you. And so David's music is a music ministry that was a grace to Saul until it made Saul hate him more, Right? And I can just imagine Saul in his head just pacing around and thinking, this guy, he's younger than me, he's faster than me, you know, the kids love him, he's great in battle, and he can play the guitar apparently, and he writes his own music and everybody likes it. Now I hate him even more, right? And this is how it is with people. This is how we do. This is how we do. We struggle with this. Sometimes... And this is what I want you to see, is that envy has the power to destroy innocent people who are actually a gift to us, who are a gift to us. And God has put you in a community 
If you're, if you're in Legacy Church or any church and you are seated in a community, people that you have tight proximity with, you life on life with each other all the time, is it not true sometimes the more gifted ones, the ones that you compare yourself to, when you're down and they try to minister to you, do you catch yourself hating them a little bit more? Maybe pushing them away. I don't need what you have. I, I don't need this ministry. I know what I'm doing. Do you catch yourself doing that? Friend, you're just throwing a spear. It just looks different. It looks a little different. That's all it is. I mean, we read this and we think to ourselves, I'd never try to kill someone. That's because you would get in trouble if you did. But King Saul, he's outside the boundaries of culture. He's outside the boundaries of law. He, he could do whatever he wants, this guy. And that's what our heart would look like. I mean, study after study after study have been done to show us what mankind is capable of whenever we think that there are no repercussions to our actions. <laughs> this maniacal envy comes out to play in Saul's life, and if we have eyes to see, we can see that it's in seed form in all of us, every single one of us. I mean, quick question. If Cain can put his brother in the ground from envy, and if Saul can shoot David down, trying to pin him to the wall out of envy, whose success makes you gag? Whose success makes you sad? Whenever you see them, you think to yourself, I'm be but I'm better than you. But I'm better than you. I've put the time in. I'm smarter than you. I'm faster than you. And you're getting that? Uh-uh. Not okay with that. Maybe you rejoice when they cry. You cry when they rejoice. You know what the spiritual answers are. The spiritual answers are, well, but I'm blessed. But what good is it to you to be in a green pasture when their pasture is just a little bit greener, right? You see, what we can do is we can find a correlation moving in the opposite direction between envy and thanksgiving. Those always run against the grain of each other. I, if, if I'm unhappy until I get what you have, if I'm unhappy until you lose it so that I can get it, then Thanksgiving's not even going to register. It can't. They can't coexist. Again, if you think comparison is safe and harmless, take a, take a page out of this playbook. Look what it did to Saul. Look what it did. His vengeance is what the human heart will really look like without constraint. I'm not better than Saul. You're not either. Outside the gospel, we're probably useless to fall into the very same patterns and traps. So how do we get to a place where we stop throwing spears and we stop eyeing people with envy? And I think the solution here is absolutely fantastic. It's one of the reasons I love this passage so much. Because what we've done up to this point, what Mark did masterfully last week and I did the week before then, and probably what you'll see for the majority of our work through David, is David it becomes this... Uh, Christ template, drawing our attention not just to him as a wise king leading his people into peace, but Christ himself leading his people into peace. But here we don't see that. David is mostly passive in this. Besides maybe dodging a spear, we don't see him doing very much or saying anything at all. Right? The contrast is between Saul and his son, Jonathan. I mean, the only thing that outmatches Saul's envy of, of David is Jonathan's love for him. Catch Catch the movement here. Jonathan shed his royal attire, making himself vulnerable before an honorable person in David. But a thousand years later, Jesus would shed his royalty in eternity past with the Father and the Spirit to hand a sword to the dishonorable. To the dishonorable. He'd hand a sword over knowing that he'd be pierced for it, murdered for it, 
He would strip himself. Wicked men would gamble for his clothing. He made himself, as the Bible says, he made himself nothing. Nothing. We see the same pattern. Vulnerable and submitted. Vulnerable and submitted. Jonathan would forfeit his crown so righteous people could thrive. Jesus would forfeit his life so unrighteous rebels and criminals would thrive. And we actually see both men saying something similar with the posture of your heart. I'm going to be sad where you're sad and joyful where you're joyful. I want you to get what you don't deserve, is what they both say. I want you to get what you don't deserve, and I don't want you to get what you do deserve. Friends, we have a far better friend than Jonathan. And what this means, this gospel application for our lives, is we are free from the need to compare. Because that's where it all starts. We're free from the pain of envy. We don't have to walk the same path as Saul. Why? Because we have God himself. And I know that's such a cliche answer for some of you, that we have God as much as we want. But I want you to consider what he has handed to you. I mean, Jonathan is effectively telling David, welcome to the family. You want, you want in on this royal thing? Here it is. You're in the family now. You're next in line. As far as I'm concerned, you're next in line. Welcome to the family. But what we have is Christ saying to you and me on an even more amplified scale, I have made space for you. Welcome to my family. Where we share the same victory, share the same blessings, share the same treasures. He pulls the chair out for us at the banqueting table and says, this place will never be stolen from you. Man, that's so much better. Now, don't even just consider what has been given to you. Consider what you have escaped Who is it in this story that is throwing the spears of destruction? It's you and me. Oh, that's what we do. That's what we do. In fact, the one who came to bring us ministry is Jesus. He does far more than just sing a song or two to comfort us. He brings his own life to comfort us. It's fascinating to me. As mankind, we're not trying to just pin Jesus to the wall. We pinned him to the cross. We did so much more. And yet, we find peace instead of torment. I am utterly fascinated with the level that Jesus submitted and made himself vulnerable, submitting to what the Father would be most glorified by and making himself vulnerable at my hands, at mankind's hands. Listen, I get envious just like you. Before I ever even dare bring a sermon to you guys, I just want to keep reminding you, I apply it to myself. I tighten the screws on myself. And, and here's the thing. I, I see men who have what I think I deserve. I see them and I think, why do, you, why do you get that? I'm smarter than you. I'm wiser than you. I've got more experience than you. I'm just better than you. And you get that and I don't. I don't think I'm okay with that. I, I get that. Not, not, not because I'm a wicked person, but because I'm just like you. Envy can show up just like that. And whenever a person like that, I'm I'm eyeballing, whenever they fail between you and me, don't tell anyone else, I feel a little bit of comfort inside. And then I feel the shame just wash over me for feeling that comfort. What a sick thing to feel, is what I say to myself. What an odd, inappropriate reaction to somebody's failure, I tell myself, right? We're all the same in that. But when I'm there, my fastest route out of envy, and I hope that's not too vulnerable for you, when I find myself in a place like that, I have a one-two punch 
that is most effective. Sometimes when I have soundness of mind, I could figure out both of them. And one is just to trust my station in life. Trust that God was wise with where he has me. He's got that guy where he's got that guy. He's got me right here. Why? For my greatest good and for his greatest glory. For his greatest glory, which is my greatest good. I wouldn't be as joyful, enriched. It wouldn't be as good for me if I was over there and he was over here. And what that does is it kills comparison. Comparison becomes silly at that point. It starts to kind of make it feel small. And then second, I thank him for bringing me eternal life. And that kills envy. It kills envy whenever I realize I can't be increased upon. Why? Because I have as much of God as I want. As much of God as I want, I have access to. As much as I want the Holy Spirit, I have access to. I just ask. I just chase down. I'm mine like a perfect jewel, as the Bible says. I look. I lean in. I have as much as I want. Listen, the next time you sense envy creeping in on you, and it will, because there's always a homecoming king or queen around you, right? There's always a, always a song about somebody else. It could have been about you. There's rivals everywhere. There's a few good questions you can ask yourself to bring sobriety to the moment. One is, is what do they have that they shouldn't have? In other words, where did God rob you? What do they have that they simply should not have? Be honest with yourself. Write it down. Write it down on one side of the page. Take as many words as you want to lament over what they have that they should not have. And then when you get to the other side of the page, ask the question, what do I have that I should not have? And be just as honest. Be just as honest. Where has God been good with me? And then maybe what kind of spears am I looking to toss? What does it look like for me to let them know? What does it look like for me to damage that person, whether they know I'm doing it or not? What do those spears look like? So much for repentance. There's so, there's so much room for us, if you can't tell already, for us to just be honest with ourselves and honest with the Lord and turn from something that could destroy you and destroy everybody around you. And listen, I know not everybody here, not everybody watching, even loves Jesus, even enjoys Jesus. Maybe you're scouting it out. Maybe you're angry at God. Maybe the station of life that you have has built a bitterness a wall of resentment between you and the Lord even. Friend, it's important to be reminded that Jesus came into this world to minister to you, not just with music, not to just sing a song or two to soothe the soul of the beast, but he brought his life. And what did we do? We threw spears at him. That's how he finds us, by the way. He comes to us and embraces us and calls us his own while we're throwing spears. The blood's on our hands. That's how he finds us. And I know what you might be thinking. This is what I thought whenever I was in your position, but there's no blood on my hands. I obviously wasn't alive back then. Had I been alive back then, I would have done this. I would have pushed that cross over and pulled those nails out and thrown them over my shoulder. I don't care what the world. No, you wouldn't have. You would have been the guy just like me in the crowd saying, crucify him. Crucify him. That's where we would have been. Secondly, friend, it's important for you to know that the blood is on your hands because he died for your sins. For your sins. He didn't die because he was Jesus. He died because he was you. He carried your big bucket of sins to that cross. So why? So that he could give you his righteousness. A powerless, non-contributing party would share in the victory of the cross. 
Jesus is a far better Jonathan, a friend who became vulnerable in dishonorable hands. Why? For the well-being of unfit people. Friends, you need to know if you carried yourself in here far from Christ, you are perfect for Jesus. And Jesus is very perfect for you. Very perfect. Perfect. 